What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you'd like to get that question answered once and for all. My goodness, you've been walking around with that question for years. Let's get that question answered today. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. While we have the A-team in place for you, Charles Beery, our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener, Jeff Burson on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we can hopefully get your question answered on today's program. Again, that phone number, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing well. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm all right. Thank you. You're just all right. Just all right. I'm huh? hanging in there. I'm, I'm trucking along. You, you know, know putting one foot in front of the other. Some days, just all right is okay. You know, I had a, I had a friend in grad school. Whenever you asked him, how are you doing? He'd say, oh, I've been worse. That's, I've been that's worse. pretty good. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. Here's an email we received from Jim, and he actually is posing a couple things in this email. Jim says, I married a Catholic and have attended Catholic Mass with her, but I remain a Protestant. I do have a desire to join the Catholic Church, but to join means I cannot pick and choose which dogmas I must accept and believe. The biggest issue I have is the elevation of Mary and some of the beliefs about her that don't have biblical foundation. I don't believe I need the intervention of Mary or the saints because my understanding is that the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit is sufficient unto salvation. Would you still encourage me to join the Catholic Church? And if so, how do I reconcile my beliefs? Yeah, thanks. So let me let me take all these questions in turn. We've got several issues to raise here. First of all, you'd like the ability to pick and choose among Catholic doctrines. Well, let me ask you a question. In your Protestant church, do you get the freedom to pick and choose among biblical books? Mm. Right? Do you say, well, I'll, I'll take John, but uh, but I'm going to throw out Second Peter. Yeah. Uh, you know, Isaiah's all right, but let's get rid of Deuteronomy. Is that is that the, the attitude that you take with respect to sacred scripture? My guess is probably not. Probably, and, and does that mean that everything in sacred scripture is easy to understand, easy to assimilate, unproblematic? Again, if you're honest with ourselves, probably not. There, there are passages of the Bible that are kind of tough. Yeah. Uh, some maybe don't sit well with other theological presuppositions we may have, and uh, and yet we don't just we don't just toss them out because uh, because of that. So. Imagine having the same disposition to all of divine revelation that you have towards the Bible, which is, uh, uh, you know, an implicit 
acceptance of its contents because it has been revealed by God. Hmm. So you come to the Bible, pr- presumably, I'm, I'm making a presumption here, whatever the Bible says is inspired and I'll accept it, then after I've accepted it, I'll go to work trying to figure out how to make sense of it. Hmm. That's, that's the attitude you have to take towards what God has revealed by way of sacred tradition. And I, I emphasize, this is what God has revealed, right? Sacred tradition is divine revelation. And, and if that makes you uncomfortable, just consider how you know what books belong in the Bible. Now, I've just posed the question, do you accept all the books in the Bible? Well, probably you do. But how did they get there? Why, why can't you pick and choose? Well, because you believe that God has revealed that these are the books. Mm-hmm. But where did he reveal that? Not in the book itself. The Bible nowhere names its own table of contents. If you believe the table of contents of the Bible is the correct one, that you have the right biblical books, the only way you can know that is because this has been handed to you by sacred tradition. Mm-hmm. So implicitly, you already accept the authority of tradition the minute you accept the biblical canon that we have. You've already accepted the authority of tradition. So just recognize that tradition is one of the ways that God reveals himself, and, and you're going to add a little bit to the data set. Tradition revealed the contents of the Bible, but it's revealed some other things as well. Okay, so you need to get that your head wrapped around that idea. Um, you know, when it comes to the question of Mary, you said, well, you, you know, you're, you're, you object on two grounds. One, um, well, maybe three grounds. One, you, you reject, object to her elevation. You, um, you object to what you take to be a lack of biblical foundation. Um, and you object on the grounds that the work of Christ is sufficient. Let's take each of those in turn. So first of all, when we talk about elevating, uh, I presume you mean honoring. And I'd like to ask you how much honor you think the coach of your favorite professional football team is entitled to. <laughs> right? Um, uh, and maybe you're not a football fan, but replace whatever you're into. Sure, okay? sure. Is Mary entitled to at least as much honor as, you know, your, your favorite sports star, uh, NFL coach, um, musician, whatever it might be? Um, is she entitled to at least that much honor? What about uh, founders of the American Republic? Is she entitled to at least as much honor as George Washington or Abe Lincoln? Or how about a civil rights reformer like Martin Luther King Jr. Is she entitled to at least that much honor? And if not, why not? Because, see, whether you're Catholic or not, one thing you have to concede is Mary's contribution to the good of the human race exceeds what George Washington or Nick Saban have done by, by orders of magnitude because she cooperated in the incarnation of the Son of God. And when the angel Gabriel presented to her God's plan, her response was, be it done to me according to thy word. She, she freely cooperated with the work of divine grace to bring about the birth of the Messiah, the, the God-man. Can you say that about any other human being alive? Did anybody else have the privilege of being the mother of God? And so just without, without considering her intercession, just in the level of like, you know, yay, go Mary, that right there would qualify her for significantly more honor than you know, Wayne Gretzky or somebody. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and so St. Paul says we should render uh, to each his due honor to whom honor. 
call to communion with Dr. David Anders on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. So before the break, we were answering an email that we received from Jim, who married a Catholic and uh, is now thinking about joining the Catholic Church, but he's got some issues. Yeah, so before the break, we addressed the question of whether or not you can pick and choose among Catholic truths and and how a Protestant might reconcile himself to the idea that you cannot. Um, We talked about the issue of the elevation of Mary, the honor afforded to Mary in the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. and I suggested that St. Paul says that we are supposed to honor people according to their merits, and that if we honor things like sports heroes and civil rights heroes and founders of the country, and that's appropriate uh, because of their merits, then the Blessed Virgin Mary merits more honor than that because her dignity is greater, having become the mother of God, contributed to the incarnation and thus our salvation. Um, and then our, 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 our emailer suggested that uh, the veneration of Mary was without biblical foundation. And I'll say two things about that. One is that I think we've already established that the Bible is not the only source of divine revelation. And, and in fact, the Bible points beyond itself to other sources of divine revelation. Uh, when St. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the liturgy, he doesn't point to a biblical text. He points to the tradition, the oral tradition that came from Christ to him through the church. And of course, Paul wasn't present in the upper room. He didn't, he didn't see the Eucharist celebrated with Christ on Holy Thursday. He learned about it from uh, those reputed to be pillars, what he you know, was given to him by, uh, handed on by sacred tradition. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that right there, that lack of biblical foundation is not a reason to throw something out. If it were, we'd have to throw out the Bible because the Bible existing as a canon lacks biblical foundation. We know the list of biblical books by adverting to sacred tradition. But I also deny that the elevation of Mary lacks biblical foundation because the Blessed Virgin Mary said prophetically of herself and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all generations will call me blessed. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is that is the explicit text of sacred scripture. Why? In view of her cooperating with the Incarnation. Um Now, uh, as far as her intercession goes, or the intercession of all the saints, again, that doesn't lack biblical foundation. The book of Revelation, chapter 5 and chapter 8, clearly indicates that the saints in heaven offer our prayers to God on our behalf. That's the express teaching of sacred scripture. Um, And in 2 Kings 13, we see the role that the relics of the saints can play in uh, the life of the people of God. Uh, So you're just mistaken on that account. Um, and then finally, the, the last objection to uh, the intercession of Blessed Virgin was that the work of Christ is sufficient. Well, Catholics don't deny that the work of Christ is sufficient. We have to make a distinction, however, between the redemption that Christ objectively accomplished on the cross, which was sufficient, and the application of that grace to us as individual believers. Like, how do you get the grace from Christ to you? How is it distributed to you? And again, the Bible is explicit that that happens through human instruments and human intercession. So St. James, for example, writes in the fifth chapter of his epistle, pray for one another that you might be healed. Pray for one another. It's an explicit command that God intends to bless the church through the prayers of other Christians. Um, uh, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, God says that uh, if anyone is, Christ, is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, the, the, new, uh, the old has gone, the new has come. 
All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And that just refers to what happens on the cross. Mm-hmm. And gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul refers both to the objective work of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross, but then he talks about how that work is distributed to his members. He gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Mm. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them, that's the objective work. But he has committed this message to us, making us co-laborers with Christ. So, again, the Bible is explicit that, uh, by God's design, we do need the intercession of human uh, mediators in our approach to God. Now, God could, of course, grant us grace without such intercession, but he chooses to do so for a very good reason, namely, that is within the, co- the context of the body of Christ, in its mutual intercession and support, that we learn the meaning and the experience of charity. Right to, to be dependent on other people and then to take up that, that care and solicitude for others. How do you express your charity for one another except by praying for one another especially? Sure. Um, uh, St. Augustine once wrote, God gave us the church so that we would have people to do good to. And the principal good that we do within the church for one another is to bear one another's burdens in prayer. And that includes the saints in heaven who pray for us. Sure. And there you go. Uh, Jim, a lot to think about, a lot to pray about. Thank you so much for your email. Hey, uh, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Teresa in Plymouth, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, um, I've just been listening to a lot of chatter on the um, Synod on Synodality and their consideration of blessing same-sex unions. Um, and I was wondering if that would be the same for a man and a woman living out of wedlock, if they didn't want the sacrament of marriage, um, could they have their union blessed? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'm afraid that the premise of your question is is uh, based on misinformation, because uh, there is no chance that the Church is going to bless same-sex unions, at least not with the Pope's blessing. And the, the Synod on Citadality, as far as I'm concerned, hasn't advocated that. And uh, and uh, and if they did, there's no way the Pope would go along with it because he said explicitly and quite recently, actually. And this is quote, I'm quoting the Pope right now. This is Pope mm-hmm. Francis. He says the Church has a very clear conception of marriage, an exclusive, stable, indissoluble union between a man and a woman. Now, exclusive means you know you can't be running around. Um, naturally open to the beginning of children. Only this union is called marriage. Other forms of union, that would be whether heterosexual or homosexual, um, are realized only in a partial and analogous way, which is why they cannot strictly be called marriage. Um, And then he goes on to say, for this reason, the church avoids any kind of rite or sacramental that could contradict that conviction or give the impression that something that is not a marriage is recognized as marriage. That's pretty clear language. Okay, So, so if you present yourself you know, in some kind of coupling or union that is sexual in nature, but is not what the church means by marriage, and ask the church to bless you specifically in the fact of that relationship, in its sexual aspect, uh, the minister of Christ must refuse. Now, what the Pope has said, and this is where people who I think are not straight shooters, they don't have goodwill towards the Pope, are trying to make hay where there is no hay. 
um, is the Pope has said, look, if someone approaches the church and asks for a blessing, the fact that they want to be blessed is, in and of itself is a good sign. Presumably, if, they're, if they are themselves people of goodwill and they're not just trying to, like, get a photo op or something, mm, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and so the church needs to explore creative pastoral ways to respond to people who don't currently live in accord with the church's moral catechesis but desire a relationship with the church, what kind of pastoral outreach uh, will help them to, to move closer to the heart of the church? But whatever that is, it cannot include blessing the union as such that's intrinsically immoral. So that would be the answer to the other question. Now, you know, look, I'm not making a suggestion here. I'm just kind of floating a hypothetical and, and I'm sure there's some priests that, out there that might want to call me and tell me, Anders, that's a terrible thing to float and shoot me <laughs> way down. Okay. Let me, th I'm just, I'm imagining, I'm imagining. And actually, this is based on a real historical case that I know. Okay. Imagine a couple that's cohabitating, or maybe they're in an invalid marriage, okay, um, which is cohabitating under a different name. They have children, right? And maybe they want the kids to be baptized and brought up in the church. And for whatever reason, they're unwilling or well, they'd have to be unwilling. They're unwilling to live in accord with the church's moral catechesis. They're not getting their marriages uh, regularized. Um, but they keep a kind of quasi-Catholic home, right? They have images of the saints and maybe a crucifix, and they want their kids baptized, take them to, you know, PSR classes at the parish, and they say to the priest, would you come bless our home? Well, that's not a request to bless their quasi-marital union as such, and it doesn't express a desire, you know, for the whole family, the children as well, to have a relationship to the priest and to the parish. What's the proper pastoral response there? Now, I, 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 I'm friends with a priest, I know, who, who at one time regularly blessed in such situations because he wasn't blessing the union, he was blessing the home. It was a response to a request for a blessing. But, you know, the Pope calls on pastors to discern, mm -hmm. to listen and to discern. So he got down there in the trenches, like the Pope says. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he got the smell of the sheep, like the Pope says. And he did that for a while. And then what he discerned was the people that he was ministering to in that way were taking it as a tacit approval of their living situation. And so he discerned his way out of doing that. I see. Right. So at one point he said, I'm going to try this approach and see if by doing this, Maybe I could bring these people closer into the church and then get their marriages regularized. And then he discerned that it was actually having the opposite effect, and so he changed his policy. Now, that was in his parish. Maybe in some other parish, in some other cultural situation, that same pastoral outreach might have been effective mm -hmm. in helping those people to regularize their marriage. That's the, and I'm not saying that I know the answer to that question. To my mind, that's the kind of pastoral discernment that the Pope is calling for. Not the blessing of immoral unions, but where can the church be present to people who are living in immoral unions in order to help them have moral unions? Uh, Teresa, is that helpful for you? It is, but I, I would just like to say, as far as the um, rhetoric that's out there, I, I, I really do feel like it's very present that there is consideration of blessing homosexuality. Oh, no doubt. Court. Yeah, yeah. There are absolutely people out there that have that agenda. Sure. And whatever the Pope says, I mean, the Pope might come out and say, <clears throat> absolutely no blessing homosexual unions. And I guarantee you that some priest is going to say, 
Well, the Pope just gave us permission to bless homosexual unions, <laughs> and he's they're going to, you know, r- run out the rainbow flag and, and have a big line, you know, mm, right? It's, yeah. it's going to happen, all right? That's always been the case in the church, right? So, I mean, in the 16th century, the Pope said, absolutely, whatever you do, you cannot enslave Native Americans. It's totally wrong. You may not do it. And then all the conquistadors said, all right, let's go enslave us some Native Americans. I mean, they just they just flat out disobeyed the Pope. Sure. People disobeying the Pope is as old as the church. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, social media is not our friend. That's in, right. In like something like this. There's an awful lot of chatter, as you have said uh, yourself there, Teresa. A lot of it. I recommend uh, stick with the sources that you know, like EWTN, National Catholic Register, Catholic Answers. You'll get the straight deal. Teresa, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Don't know if you like jigsaw puzzles. I love jigsaw puzzles, even though they do frustrate me a little bit. Let me tell you about a new product now available, and this would be great for your family for Advent and Christmas. It is a stained glass nativity jigsaw puzzle Advent calendar. It's a 24-day countdown to Christmas. This unique jigsaw puzzle Advent calendar includes 24 numbered boxes, each of these containing one section of the puzzle. So, beginning December 1st, all you do is assemble the pieces in the box numbered 1. Then you assemble the pieces in the next numbered box each day, December 2nd, December 3rd, all the way through December 24th, and by then, your puzzle will be completed for Christmas. Not only that, each piece has its box number on the back of the puzzle piece, so when the season ends, just break the puzzle apart, put the pieces back in their respective boxes for more fun next year. It's a lot of fun. The uh, completed puzzle is about 27 by 19 inches when completed. Do check this out. The Jigsaw Puzzle Advent Calendar. It's a stained glass nativity. Check it out by going to EWTN rc.com buy catholic shop catholic ewtnrc.com i think we're going to buy this thing this looks great let's go now to a murray in texas listening on spirit catholic radio online murray what's on your mind today sir so uh thanks for taking my call dr anders um i have a friend who describes himself as a cynical agnostic and he has asked me to explain the existence of God in light of quantum mechanics. I know very little about quantum mechanics, so I thought I'd pass that up the line to you. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I also know very little about quantum mechanics, and uh, you know what I what I know I, I learned in a high school physics class plus some pop science books that I have read over the years and, mm. and engagement with a few philosophers. So I, I will not talk about quantum mechanics in depth, <laughs> okay. lest I make a fool of myself. But I, I will tell you this, that, that one of the things that we uh, have learned from quantum mechanics, if I am reading the information right, is that it, it's really wrong to think about the foundational levels of matter in a corpuscular way or an atomistic way that that the rally is not made up of of uh, of like tiny little concrete entities 
uh, you know, like Lego blocks that are built together and, and to create some superstructure. And that, that's the way people used to think. I mean, Democritus had the atomic theory and others have had similar ideas down the centuries. Um, but that the, the, the deeper you go into the fundamental analysis of nature, the, the less you get some concrete particular that you can weigh and measure, and the more reality seems to diffuse into just layers of probability. Um, uh, we might consider another way of putting it into sort of layers of potentiality. And, and I'm going to hold that thought until after the break. Yeah, sit tight there. Murray will continue on the other side. We'll also talk with Jeff in Tulsa. A couple lines open for you. Looks like uh, three lines open at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We have two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Murray in Texas uh, regarding a friend of his who is a cynical agnostic, and he was getting uh, deep deep diving there into uh, quantum mechanics. Yeah, so he, he asked Murray, his friend asked him to explain the existence of God in light of quantum mechanics. So um, what I began to say was that what we know about quantum mechanics, or what quantum mechanics seems to suggest, is that at the, at the most fundamental level of material reality, you have not atoms or corpuscles or, you know, concrete material entities, but, but, um, but sort of domains of, of probability and possibility. And, and interestingly... That is exactly the way Aristotle described reality 2,500 years ago. Mm. He said that in, in metaphysics, the, the primary distinction that we need to draw about the nature of being, the nature of reality itself, is the continuum between actuality and possibility. And it doesn't take a lot of uh, consideration to realize that there can't ever be something called just pure potentiality. Because if it's, if it's pure potentiality, then there is literally nothing actual, mm, yeah. right? Um, and so, so f- the old adage from, from nothing, nothing comes applies here, right? Which is Aristotle called the realm of pure potentiality prime matter. And it was just an abstraction because he didn't think you could actually have pure potentiality. So what exists at the other end of the continuum from pure potentiality? Pure actuality. Yeah. Guess what the Catholic definition of God is? Pure actuality. Um, the, the existence that must exist. The, the, the necessary existence of being itself. That's the Catholic definition of God. All right. Murray, thanks so much uh, for your call. Let's go to uh, line one. We're going to talk with uh, Henry in Kansas City, Kansas, listening on YouTube today. Henry, what's on your mind? Hi. So my question's about the Catholic Church's claims about safeguarding apostolic tradition. I was reading about how the practice of lay people receiving the Eucharist has varied really dramatically through the centuries. Yes, it has. Even to the point of, you know, receiving it once a year for a while. And it makes me doubt that the continuity, like the doctrine might be intact, but if that practice changed so much, why wasn't that handed on as consistently as the doctrine behind the practice? Oh yeah, sure. Because because practice and doctrine are two different categories, right? And so and so, um, what the church claims about the continuity of sacred tradition has to do specifically with the deposit of faith, the proclamation of the kerygma, 
the message of the of the birth, death, incarnation, birth, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ for our salvation, and all that's entailed by that, like the, the foundation of the church, the mission of the Holy Spirit, the ecclesial structure of the church, and the college of the apostles, and the ministry of the sacraments, things like this, uh, you know, the sort of basic, you know, fundamental moral truths of the human person. That, that's that's really we're that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about um, the infallibility of the church and and the the ability to to adapt that central content of the deposit of faith to different pastoral situations in different eras has always been part of the Catholic self-understanding. I mean, uh, just geographically from day one, um, you know, the faith has always been this, this continuity, of course. There's a, you know, there's a Venn diagram of, uh, of, of sameness, uh, but at those outlying areas of the Venn diagram, there's always those, those cultural differences in accretion. So just the existence of different rites in the church, for example, whether you're looking at the Latin rite or the Syrian rite or the uh, Alexandrian rite or, or whatever. I mean, these are, these are uh, you know, lots of ritual differences in the way the liturgy is celebrated geographically. Uh, and of course, there's going to be historically um, as well. But that's like the church has never made the claim that there is a one completely ossified ritual formula in, that in every respect remains unchanged. I mean, that's, that's yeah, we don't make that claim. Would be, it would be it would be useless to make that claim yeah. because it would it would be infelicitous. It would be it would be unhelpful, right? It would make the thing odious because, like, uh, I mean, at the very least, you know, languages change. You, yeah, you know, I mean, you you have to minister to people in their in their local context. I mean, yeah, so. That's never been the claim of the church. Human beings are kind of messy, aren't they? Human beings are messy, yeah. (laughs) Henry, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-EWTN is our number. 833-288-3986. Kelly is in the Chicagoland area, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Kelly, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, my name is actually Kelly. Very good. What's on your mind today? Yeah, so I'm calling you because um, I had an accident and it blew down uh, some of my uh, prized and beloved uh, statues of Our Lady and uh, and the infant Jesus, and it shattered them, but not completely, but enough that I can't put them back together. And um, wondering how to correctly and respectfully, without being too scrupulous, dispose of them. And also, I have a bunch of you know candles that I've used that have sacred images on the sides of them that I want to know, you know, the same question is, is how to, when you're just at home, how do you deal with uh, that kind of uh, item? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, you know, it's, there's a difference if the object has been blessed or not. Um, blessed items are supposed to be burned or buried. Right, right, right and right. and sometimes you may have objects, and it, may, it becomes mm. kind of burdensome to do that. So you can take them to the church for disposal. Um, but uh, you know, if somebody, if I've got, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a Sunday school book that I've had for twenty five years from you know my kid's second grade PSR class that has a picture of our Lord on the cover, I'm not going to hesitate about putting that in the garbage can. You know. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. Kelly, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It is called to communion here on EWTN. Fred, watching us on YouTube, asks, My question is, when Protestants say that Christ died on the cross once and for all, and therefore cannot be alive and real and present in the sacrifice of the Mass, what is the traditional Catholic response? Yeah, thanks. So one thing to understand about the Protestant position is you need to understand their doctrine of the atonement, why they think that sentence makes sense, because it doesn't make any sense at all to a Catholic. 
And the reason why is because Catholics and Protestants have very different views about what happened on the cross. Here is the standard Protestant view. Now, look, there are, there are Protestants who don't believe this, okay? Yeah, I yeah. get that, I get that. Wesley didn't believe it. Um, but, uh, well, some of his followers didn't believe it, for sure. Uh, but uh, Calvin and Luther did. And so a lot of Protestants believe this way. Their, their view is that God is wrathful at the human race. Uh, in fact, I think Jonathan Edwards said that we're uh, infinitely more odious to God than than the most vile serpent is in our eyes. Wow. Right? Like, God really, really can't stand you. He just thinks you're a stinking bag of maggots, to quote Luther. Okay? And, and he just can barely stand to look at you because you're so putrid with all of your pestilent sins. And so he has a—God has a, a need, actually. God, God can't not punish sin. He, he absolutely has to. By the, the exigencies of his own nature, he must expiate his wrath upon a subject, right? Now, here's where it gets weird. Uh, for Protestants, though God is, is sort of infinitely wrathful at the sin of the human race, he doesn't actually have to meet that wrath out upon the sinner. He can, he can put it on another object— and so uh, he decides that he will expiate his wrath upon his own son, that he will pour out his wrath upon the innocent Jesus Christ, who, you know, being a sacrifice of infinite merit, it, it basically can absorb in the infinite wrath of God. And then God, having sort of gotten it out of his system, as it were, is able to freely forgive uh, uh, sinful humans who accept that forgiveness by faith alone. So it, it puts God in the strange position of punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty and calling that justice. And sometimes Protestants will say, well, you know, God can't leave sin unpunished. Well, actually he could if he wanted to, <laughs> like he's God, you know, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Um, so they really make God kind of the, the, the prisoner of his own wrath in this sense, and it has to be poured out on somebody, but it could be kind of indiscriminate because it doesn't have to be poured out on the person who sinned. Just to be poured out on someone, in this case, he gets poured out on Christ. Now, in that model of the atonement, since God has expiated, he's sort of poured out the last dregs of his wrath on Jesus, like, there's literally nothing else for the atonement to do. Like, since that's the function of the atonement, and God's wrath has been completely satisfied, then, like, you don't need anything else. You're, you're, you're done, all right? That's not the way the Catholic Church sees the atonement of the death of Christ, the f purpose of the Christian life for a Catholic is not simply to get your sins forgiven, but is in having your sins forgiven to be reconciled to God in your heart, in your character, so that you now love what God loves and are drawn close to him in, in your being, that the, that the image and likeness of God marred by sin is actually restored in you so that you come to resemble Christ. Right, so so love is really essential to reconciliation with God. Uh, your your whole character has changed. Your whole personality, your whole outlook, your way of life has changed, and uh, and and the atonement of the death of Christ works that in you in a number of ways. So one is that Christ makes an offering of himself, not not makes himself the bearer of God's wrath, mm. but he he makes a, a free offering of himself. Uh, that's meritorious in the same way that we would honor, say, a fallen, you know, war hero who, you know, jumps on a grenade to save his, his colleagues. We don't think that, you know, he's getting the wrath of the grenade poured out on him. We really think this is an offering of love for the sake of his fellow man, right? And we honor him. We go put a statue up to him in Washington, D.C. or something. That this, this self-offering of Jesus, when he handed himself over to unjust men to die a martyr's death, is meritorious. And even as we feel 
like it's right and just to, to honor meritorious activity, so does God. And so he merits for the human race the grace of redemption. So that's one thing that the death of Christ does. But another thing the death of Christ does, and Peter talks about this in his first epistle, is he gives us an example of what love looks like. And so St. Peter tells us explicitly that Christ died on the cross to give us an example. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he means for us to live that way, that we would lay down our lives in love for our, for our fellow human beings. And so the cross of Christ saves us by way of example. Another way that the cross of Christ saves us, and this is kind of mystical, is that we, when we come to internalize Christ's personality, Christ within you, the hope of glory, Paul says, um, the, the sort of the dynamic of the crucifixion, this business of dying and rising, we internalize that um, uh, so that we, we are changed by it from the inside out. Paul calls this like dying with Christ on the cross and rising again with him to new life. So that the dynamic of death and resurrection becomes intrinsic to our personalities. Um, so we're mystically, uni- uh, u- mystically joined. We're in a mystic union with Jesus who dies on the cross. Now that, that mode of engagement, the last two modes of engagement actually, the, um, the example and then that mystical union, well those are active principles that are constantly and progressively at work in the life of a Catholic, right? You don't just, you don't just look at Jesus' death once and then instantly become a perfect imitator of him. You, you meditate upon it, you, you interiorize it, you bring it into the center of your personality so that you come increasingly over time to live more and more that cruciform way. Now, when Christ is present to us in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, when he is made present on the altar through transubstantiation, we, we ritually memorialize what happened at Calvary. The Mass is the memorial of what happened at Calvary. Uh, the priest demonstrates through ritual action Christ's self-offering and then calls us to imitate it. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so we bring our own self-offering to this ritual memorial of the death of Christ in order to more deeply interiorize what actually happened on Calvary so that we ourselves can become more and more cruciform people. That, By definition, that's not something that's one and done. It, it must be lived continuously in order to be effective. I mean, sure. I know a lot of Protestants. Some of them are deeply loving and sacrificial people. I guarantee you they didn't get there the day they invited Jesus into their heart, <laughs> right? It was the process of a lifetime of discipleship. Sure. And the cross and the cruciform life is central to that. Well, Catholics make it central to their worship. Beautiful. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Fred, for your question via YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. want to say a few words here about something that is on the EWTN website, and it's wonderful. It's called Podcast Central. This is not only programs that we produce, like this show or Open Line or Women of Grace, etc., but it's also uh, some of our partners and affiliates around the country, uh, people like uh, Dr. Scott Hahn and uh, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Uh, it's all part of Podcast Central. Uh, our programs, uh, programs produced by others, and that 
Podcast Central has actually spawned a radio show called Catholics Coast to Coast, which we air each uh, each week, Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's hosted by our friend uh, Ace McKay. This week he dives deep into the rosary and devotions to Mary, thanks to the guys with the Poco a Poco podcast, a very good one. Also tips on how to improve communication and take back our families, and that's on the Messy Family podcast. It's a great show. It's uh, all coming to you from EWTN's Podcast Central. Again, it's called Catholics Coast to Coast, Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. All right, let's go now to Sean in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Sean. What's on your mind today? Good morning. It's morning here. Okay. Um, okay. I just I just got out of a Bible Bible study where we're studying uh, the book of John, and this week we were in John chapter six, the Bread of Life discourse, and it came to our attention. My question is: in Jesus referring to eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John chapter six, verses fifty three to fifty six. We contrasted that with the command in Leviticus, chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, where the Jewish people were prohibited by God from drinking the blood of anything at the risk of being cut off from God, and he would set himself against the Israelites. And I think this explains a little bit about why the people were so appalled at it, but can you help me understand how Jesus became, how Jesus reconciles these two in his command of drinking his blood? Yeah, Thank you. sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. So first of all, you've got a clue as to why some of his audience was so offended by the teaching, right? Because this, this is a horrifying idea to them. Yeah. But let me tell you what the, what the Catholic position is on the eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and blood. Well, we believe that we do consume the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, uh, but in a very different mode from the, than the mode, say, that flesh would be that you got from the butcher shop, right? Um, and it's, it's significant that the Church does not say that Jesus is physically present in the Eucharist. The Church says that Jesus is substantially present in the Eucharist. Substantial is not the same thing as physical. Physical is what you get when you go to the butcher shop. You can see the veins. You can see the marbly fat in the steaks. You know, you can see the blood dripping off onto the butcher paper when you take it home. That's physical. That's not how Christ is present in the Eucharist. There are no drippy veins in the Eucharist, right? We talk about the substance. And the reason they use the word substance is they specifically abstract away all those particularizing sensible properties. And, and so serious is the Church about this specific mode of presence that we say that as, as soon as the appearance of bread and wine ceases, and at some point in the digestive process, it doesn't look like bread anymore, yeah. it doesn't look like wine anymore, mm-hmm. that the substantial presence of Christ ceases. And so there's no way that you metabolize um, the physical blood of Jesus into your system. It's not cannibalism, right? You're not actually you're not actually consuming Christ for the caloric value or the nutritional value. That's a completely different mode of consumption. Um, we're talking here about a mode of presence that is deeply, deeply mysterious. Real, to be sure, real, but profoundly mysterious. 
And so all charges about cannibalism and this kind of thing just are, are utterly beyond the point because they, they radically mistake what the church teaches about the mode of presence. Now, I'll grant you that John 6 doesn't go into all these fine distinctions. This is something that emerges in the church's reflection inspired by sacred tradition. Right. Um, John 6 just gives us the reality of the real presence combined with the obvious paradox that it doesn't look that way. And the church, in reflecting on the mystery, has, has discerned the way forward in this distinction between substance and accidents. Sean, is that helpful for you? It is, with the qualifier that how were people at the time to have understood what the church has developed over its reflections and expounded in its traditions, and to have understood that this is what he was talking about, and not drinking his blood. Yeah, sure. So that's a—well, first of all, the, the way they understood it was because Christ instituted the Eucharist, mm-hmm. right? He instituted the Eucharist, and so the, the, the minute Christ instituted the Eucharist and he said to the, the apostles, this is my body, this is my blood, they recognized we're talking about something different here than Jesus slitting his veins, I mean, it's, it's, it's evident from the nature of the rite itself. And, of course, the rite, the communion rite in the Church, is far older than the Gospel of John. So the initial readers of John's Gospel interpreted John 6 in light of their prior experience of the liturgy, not uh, the other way around. Okay. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for your call. Good to hear from you in Coeur d'Alene today. It's called Communion on EWTN. Tracy, watching us on YouTube, says, Is there a book to help those who have been remarried, had their first marriage annulled, and have children from the previous marriage. How would they practice their faith with an annulled first marriage? Yeah, I, I can't give you a book. I'm sure there is one. I just don't have one at hand. Okay. But as far as the second question, how do you practice your faith? So are we talking about a couple that is, um, they're living together and they're not validly married— um, I'm, I'm, I'm read the question again. Are they as the couple? Are we, are we to presume okay. that they've been remarried in the church or not? Uh, it looks like yes, because uh, they have been remarried, had their first marriage oh, okay. annulled, okay. and then have you know children from the previous marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, if you if you're remarried in the church, then your marriage is sacramental yep. and valid, right? And so the graces of the sacrament of matrimony are available to you to bless your home. So you just carry on living the Catholic faith like you would have, right? I mean, the the children from the previous marriage, they don't have any negative fallout, right? I mean, they, they benefit still mm-hmm. from the sacramental grace present in your home and marriage. Sure. And you just you raise them like you do your kids. Tracy, thanks for your question via YouTube. Here's an email from Kevin. In Luke 12, Jesus said that anyone who blasphemes against him will be forgiven, but those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Can you explain this? Sure. So, you know, the context of this was when Jesus was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. The Pharisees said he casts out demons by Beelzebub. And uh, Jesus said, you know that's false. I mean, like, that is just dumb, right? I mean, Beelzebub does not cast out Beelzebub. That's insane. So you're just saying this. This is an excuse that you're throwing up there to avoid actually listening to me, Uh right? Um, this is a this is what we call this is like the ultimate ad hominem argument, right? I don't have to listen to what you say because you're a bad person. Nah, 
right? Well, that that's invalid, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, that that what I'm doing is legitimate. You understand that I'm casting out demons by the by the spirit of God, and mm-hmm. yet you are rejecting the spirit of God. So why can't you be forgiven for that? Well, think about it. What does forgiveness entail? Forgiveness entails me turning to God, seeking fellowship with him on his terms. As long as I'm unwilling to do that, as long as I'm unwilling to turn to God and seek fellowship with him on his terms, then, like, what is the meaning of forgiveness? Like, that, that, that doesn't make any sense, mm, yeah. right? Like, I want to be reconciled with you, not... <laughs> right? Yeah. And so the way the Catholic Church understands this is that the unforgivable sin is final impenitence. Like, the, the, the unwillingness to be reconciled to God is itself the unforgivable sin. And it's unforgivable until you're willing to be reconciled to God, at which point it is forgivable. But if you continue like that to the end of your days, well, then there you go. Kevin, thanks for your email. We'll close with this one from an anonymous catechumen who says, I want to join the Catholic Church, but I also want to continue to take communion with my parents at their Lutheran church occasionally. So as a Catholic, which is what this person is interested in becoming, can I receive communion in a Lutheran church even if I know and realize I'm receiving only bread and wine, not the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ? Nope. Simple question. Nope. Can't do it. Absolutely not. Out of the question. See, the rite of communion is more than a confession of our belief in the real presence. Um, it is the, the rite that both represents and effects the Church's unity. And so the symbolic act of going to communion signals to yourself and to those around you, mm-hmm. I believe this is the church that Christ founded with, with, within which I'm in fellowship, or with which I'm in fellowship. So if you go do that in a Lutheran church, you're saying to all the world, I'm in fellowship with the Lutheran church as a church. Mm-hmm. No, there, there's a respect in which you can be in fellowship with Lutherans. Nothing wrong with being in fellowship with Lutherans. Sure, sure. Right? But you're not in fellowship with the Lutheran church as a church, you see. Yeah. And if you go to communion in their liturgy, you're saying by your actions, this is the church Christ founded. The sacrament of the church's unity is rightly expressed here, when it ain't. So you can't testify against yourself that way. That's a performative contradiction. Okay. Well, we thank you so much uh, for your email, and we hope that that is helpful for you. Hopefully you can, uh, hopefully your parents, your Lutheran parents, will understand. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. We encore that same program at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. If you liked today's program, or even if you're a little confused about something and you'd like to hear it again, well, not a problem. You'll remember we earlier were talking about the Podcast Central aspect of EWTN.com. Go to Podcast Central by going to EWTN.com and then uh, go, you know, slash radio. That's it. EWTN.com slash radio. Click on the word podcast and you'll, uh, you'll get to where you need to be. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Friday edition of Call to Communion. God bless.